0: Welcome to the first episode of Oakham Church Podcast. And uh, In this episode, we'll be exploring and digging into and unpacking a little bit more um, some of the themes that were touched on Sunday's message just gone. Um, obviously, uh, the things that need to be said, the things that want to be talked about. Um, we can't go into quite so much detail and have quite so much of a conversation about in a kind of sermon or a message uh, format So, this is where this podcast is going to be perfect for that. Uh, I'm going to begin by uh, reading some texts that were the texts from uh, Sunday just gone. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You're familiar with the old written law love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. And then over in chapter 6, starting in verse 7. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programmes and advice peddling techniques for getting what you want from God don't fall for that nonsense this is your father you're dealing with and he knows better than you what you need I'm going to jump a bit more ahead into verse 25 if you decide for God living the life of God worship It follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes, or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone, by fussing in front of the mirror, ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it matters and makes that much of a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen colour and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting, so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works Steep your life in God-reality, God-initiative, God-provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. Don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. And then our other reading was from Philippians chapter 4, um, verses 6 and 7. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the centre of your life. So we find ourselves in this, um, this season in our lives and in this series in teaching um, where we're looking at the topics of anxiety and depression and fear and worry and stress. And it feels like more than ever now, there seems to be more and more um, of this about, more and more reason to even be feeling this in the first place. It seems like this is a a common thing. I threw up quite a few um, scary sounding facts on on Sunday. Uh, Like one in four people in England will experience mental health problems each year. And that 792 million people are affected by mental health issues worldwide. Now the question then obviously becomes that if if anxiety is so common if it is something that seems to be something that people are struggling with more and more often more and more today then the question's why what are the reasons for this um this anxiety this stress this fear to be to be so prevalent in our world today and the first thing that i said was it's down to iPhones And not necessarily iPhones, it could be any kind of smartphone uh, is going to do the same sort of thing. But it's not even about that. It's about how in our pockets, in our bags, in our hands, instant access to all of this catastrophe and threat from all of our 24-hour news cycles and our Twitter feeds and our Instagrams that we just check over and over again. Um, I listed off a big long thing of what the stuff that was going on. You can go and Google it. It's absolutely terrifying of the, just the things that have happened just this year. Uh, all the things that, that we have um, had to kind of work through and deal with. And in some respects mourn through. Um, and you can go and, and check that out yourselves. But I found another really um, interesting and quite terrifying statistic um, the other day. Um, it says the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. The question, of course, then is what? And also, what would my life be like if I could replace that kind of almost obsessive compulsive um, relationship that I have with my phone? What if I could replace that usually negative relationship with technology that we all seem to have, what if we could replace that relationship with a more wholesome one, with a more life-affirming one, with a more life-giving one, um, with a relationship with God? What would it be like if, if, if God touched my mind and my heart and the feelings that I was experiencing on a daily basis as frequently as I touch my phone? 2,617 times a day that's terrifying and all that this, um, uh, this technology does for us really particularly around social media is all that it does is prop up uh, these things that we haven't really n- known existed up until this point of, of FOMO fear of missing out And social media, um, places like Twitter and particularly Instagram is where you go, and you see these heavily filtered, heavily thought about, heavily doctored images that people put out into the world to send out a particular message, to send out a particular story that they want other people to see. I'm not saying that's not true, but that's not true. It's not a fair and honest representation of what's going on for all the beautifully um, sculpted and laid out um, pictures that you see on on instagram if you could just turn that camera a few degrees and look at the mess and the clutter and the chaos and the destruction that's going on around it it would be terrifying it would be eye-opening But Instagram doesn't want to show you that. Instagram wants to prop up this story. Instagram wants to um, feed the beasts of comparison and competition. You see, whenever you go onto Instagram, whenever you touch your phone uh, those 2,617 times a day, and you get those alerts, one, you get a dopamine fix straight away when you see that that someone has liked something that you've posted or someone has hearted something or someone has, has retweeted something. You get a dopamine fix. You get a physical payoff just for that. And so, of course, you're going to keep coming back to your phone over and over and over again. But whilst you're doing that, we're opening ourselves up to this competition and this comparison. Because now I get to see how quickly that person ran their 5k It makes me want to run it quicker. Now I see how perfectly that person's house looks or how nice that car is that they drive or how beautiful that plate of food was that they had yesterday. And it makes me want to look perfect and to drive a posher car and to eat nicer food than them. It's this competition, this competing, this trying to constantly keep up with the Joneses. And that never ends. Because there's always someone else that next rung up the ladder. And then there's always someone up the next rung up the ladder. And so we climb and we climb and we climb as we compete. Only to find out, as uh, Thomas Merton's famously quoted as saying, is get to the top of that that ladder that we've been climbing in, in competition. Only to find that the ladder's leaning up against the rung wall. And if competition doesn't get us, then comparison will where we look out at other people's lives and they just look so much better than ours. We look out at other people's clothes and their pets and their houses and their jobs and their bank accounts and their holidays and their restaurants and it all just looks more. It all looks better, it looks shinier, it looks newer. And then we look at us And I look at what I am, and what I've got, and where I go, and what I wear, and I just sink. So competition makes me fight, and struggle, and strain, and stress, to try and push on, and push on, and push on all the time to unhealthy levels. And comparison just makes me sink down lower, and lower, and lower. And both of these two things will just lead to being unsatisfied. To be feeling stressed and anxious and fearful and depressed and even suicidal. What's another reason that that this is so common in our world today? Well, it's this increasing social isolation. Now, of course, this has been at the forefront of of most of our lives for for going on for six months now with this COVID-19 pandemic where some of us have been forced to shelter in place, forced to stay at home, forced to self-isolate, to shut ourselves in. Things have been cancelled left, right and centre. All the things that we used to like to do, all the places that we used to like to go, we couldn't do anymore. And there was this increase in social isolation. But this pandemic isn't the only time and the only place that this is happening. More and more now in 2020, more than ever, um, we find ourselves, thanks to iPhones and smartphones and tablets and laptops and the internet, we find ourselves more and more connected, but at the same time more and more isolated than ever before. There seems to be a real issue, a real struggle, a real battle going on with belonging, or at least feeling like we belong. We have a a big champion that all of us kind of support and prop up and it's this this script of individualism and individualism has taught us over and over again that the one is more important than the group it's why um, there's a a recent trend of uh, of stopping going to church at all and saying i don't need to physically go to that building i can get church from other things, I can listen to podcasts. I can download worship music. I can have online chats with people, and I can get my community that way. So I don't need to go to a physical co- community, a physical building. I can I can get all of the stuff that I want to come to me, and in a way that is beautiful for for certain reasons, but in others it is dangerous because we miss out on so much. And this individualism beast is just getting fed more and more that it's about me and what I like and what I want. So even if we do venture out and go to a church, we, we prop up these individualistic ideas in other ways where we, we attend a church as a consumer. And as long as the worship's the style that I like, then I'll stay. And as long as the teaching is done in a way that I enjoy or or gives me nice feelings and, and that sort of stuff, then I will stay. And as long as the chairs are comfortable, then I will stay. As long as the coffee tastes good, then I will stay. But once you change, once any of those things don't tick my requirements as this consumer, then I'm gone. And I will hop to the next church in search of somewhere that will meet my needs and will deal with me as an individual. But all that this individual focus has done, all that this self-isolation, whether it's been self-inflicted or not, is doing, is leading us towards more and more of these feelings of anxiety and depression and hopelessness. And then thirdly, another common reason for why this is so common, probably the biggest of all, is that we have a sickness of hurry. This is what I really want to expand on and have a conversation about in this podcast, really. This third point of this sickness of hurry. Um, John Mark Comer uh, recently, well say recently, probably a couple of years ago now, uh, released a book um, that is all about this. It's a, a fantastic book. And um, I uh, definitely recommend you uh, getting hold of it if you can. It's called The Ruthless Elimination. Of hurry and it's a, a really a really interesting uh way to unpack a lot of the things that we would be thinking about and talking about in a discussion like this today and in it and he, he uses a Thomas Merton quote in, in one part of the book and he, he calls Merton calls this the rush and pressure of the modern Life, And that was back in the 60s and 70s that Thomas Merton talked about this. If he was here in 2020, I dread to think what he would think of how we live our lives today. But he called this the rush and the pressure of modern life. And he said it is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. Violence seems like a really harsh and aggressive word, but violence is right. Violence is the right kind of word. You see, hurry... Hurry is a sickness. It's a a sickness that we are all infected with. Whether we wear a mask or not, whether we sanitize our hands or not, we all suffer from this sickness of hurry. And hurry does a few things. Firstly, hurry kills relationships. You see, love, love takes time. Love needs to be patient. Love is something that grows over time. Hurry doesn't have time. Hurry wants things now. Hurry wants things instantaneously. Hurry wants things yesterday. But love takes time. So, hurry kills relationships. Secondly, hurry kills joy and gratitude and appreciation as well. You see, people in a rush, don't have the time or the inclination to enter into the goodness of a moment. People in a hurry don't stop long enough to be thankful. Hurry kills wisdom because wisdom is born in the quiet. Wisdom is born in the slow. Wisdom has its own pace. Wisdom makes you wait for it makes you wait for the inner voice to come to the surface of, of, your, of your busy and cluttered and noisy and tempestuous mind. But not until the waters of thought will settle and calm, and that takes being still. That swishing, swirling, noisy messiness within us is never going to settle down while we're in such a hurry. And finally, hurry kills all that we hold dear. Spirituality, our health, maybe our marriage, our family, our thoughtful work, our creativity, our generosity. Just name your value. Hurry is this, uh, what um, John Mark Comer calls, uh, hurry is a sociopathic predator loose on our society. So hurry kills our relationships. Hurry kills our joy and our gratitude and our appreciation. Hurry kills our wisdom. And hurry kills all that we hold dear. It's no wonder that we are sick. The fact is that we are simply just going too fast. We are moving too rapidly through our lives, through our days. All thanks to all of this other stuff that we surround ourselves with. Every aspect of our world and our lives are hurried That's a perfect story from this, from uh, Luke chapter 10. As they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. A woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Later she stepped in, interrupting them. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend a hand to me. The master said, Martha, dear Martha, you are fussing far too much and getting yourself all worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course and it won't be taken from her. See, in this story is a perfect example of this hurry sickness. Martha is infected with this hurry sickness and it's not her fault she is just living the life that she has been taught how to live she is just living out the story that has been told for generation after generation after generation she is just following the script that she has been given through her culture through her tradition even through her religion she has been told that to be um, to be a good Jew means to be a good host. To be a good Hebrew means to be a good host. And you see this even today, even in any of the um, kind of Middle Eastern countries, if you ever venture that way on on your holidays to places like Egypt and and that kind of place. um, Over and over again, all people want to do is welcome you into their homes, welcome you into their shops, give you something to drink, give you something to eat, because it's seeped deep down into their culture that being a host is how that you give honour to others and honour to God. And so what Martha is doing here isn't wrong. What Martha is doing here is expected. And I kind of get the idea that it doesn't tell you in the story, but before Jesus turns up, I think Mary was probably doing that as well. Mary was probably following that same script and helping out in the kitchen and, and tidying up and set uh, putting the cushions all straight, ready for the, this visit. And, and, and as Jesus comes, unannounced almost, um, the intensity then comes higher and higher and higher. And this, this hurry sickness, this rushing around, this banging of pots and pans and desperately trying to get food and drink ready... Um, is just increasing and increasing all the way for poor old Martha. And she gets herself so worked up and so rushed around and she's... I'm sure she's doing this competing and this comparing. She's thinking, well, well, Jesus went to so and so's house last week, and and Jesus went there the week before, and and I, I heard that that they served him this meal at this, and and he got to stay here, and and I've got to get all these things ready, and he's got to have the best of the best, he's got to be comfortable, he's got to have food, he's got to have drink ready, I've got to be, I've got to be ready to serve him everything that he could possibly want or need, and all of this comes from a good place. She cares. And so she's rushing around and she's hurrying around, but she's missing it. See, it comes from a good place, but she is missing it. Martha competes and Martha compares. Just like, as we saw with social media especially, it's been propped up over and over again. just like in our lives today. Martha is so sick with hurry that she even, at one point in this story, tries to tell God what to do. She has lost track of what's going on so much, what started off as such such a good heart for this, that, that she wanted to do her best, that she wanted to make Jesus comfortable, that she wanted to give Jesus what he liked, that she wanted to serve him, started off so good, and yet by the end, she's got so churned up and so turned up and so anxious about all these things, all these pots that are bubbling away at once, that she has missed the real reason for any of it. The real reason she's getting all this cooking and this cleaning and this preparing done, it's because Jesus is here. And instead of celebrating that, she goes to Jesus and says, don't you care? Just like with the disciples uh, on the stormy seas as uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat, they say, don't you care, Jesus, that we're gonna die? And she says, don't you care that, that my sister isn't helping? That my sister's leaving all of this to me? That my sister is causing more anxiety and more stress and more pressure on me? And so I'm having to hurry around more and more and more and more. Just tell her to help me. But Jesus doesn't, of course, because Jesus recognises what's important. That all of this hurry, all of this sickness all of this busyness, all of this social media and doing 17 things at once and rushing from here to there to everywhere, not stopping long enough to appreciate and stopping long enough to to soak in what's really important, that Martha is missing it. And I think that today in 2020, we are too. We're missing it. This isn't just a modern problem. This isn't just a modern day thing. I said technology and social media doesn't help. It doesn't. It agitates what's already there under the surface. As humans, the thing within us to compete and to compare has been there since day one. We saw Cain and Abel in that storyline. Competing and comparing. And then just go a few centuries... um, Later, after the Bible's been written, you get to Augustine and and he kind of described anxiety like this, I shared this Sunday. He said, I carried inside me a cut and bleeding soul and how to get rid of it, I just didn't know. My soul floundered in the void. So with all of that said, Jesus quite helpfully in the Gospels as part of the Sermon on the Mount says, don't be anxious, which of course then makes me feel anxious about feeling anxious. What is he saying? What does he mean? Is he saying that if we are a genuine and truthful and honest follower of Jesus, if we are in fact a Christian, and then we experience or we feel anxiety, then that's a sign that there is something wrong. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that some people believe it. I think that some people have been taught it. It's a script and a storyline that people live out of. But all that does is just add shame on top of anxiety, and those two beasts just feed each other. So if that's not what Jesus is doing, then maybe Jesus, when he says, don't be anxious, maybe he's just denying reality. Maybe he's so out of touch with what it's like to be a human. Maybe he doesn't even know what it feels like to be anxious. And so this is a, a denial of reality, like a burying our heads in the sand, plugging up our ears with our fingers and saying, la, 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 I'm not listening. But no, that's not the case either. Because Jesus knows all too well that this world is full of chaos and full of corruption and full of reasons to feel like this. He himself in the garden, as he's praying, is anxious. And by Jesus saying, don't be anxious, maybe he's just saying that We can just stop being anxious on command. Like, we can just will it. Like, if we're just strong enough mentally or physically or emotionally or spiritually, we can just will ourselves not to have anxiety. Not to feel stressed or worried or fearful or hopeless. If we can just squeeze down, we can white-knuckle it enough. If we can just grit our teeth enough, then we can just force ourselves. We can stop ourselves from being command Comancheous, stop ourselves from being anxious. We can stop ourselves from being anxious. We can stop ourselves from being anxious. We can just stop it on command. No, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. Because as we've already seen over and over again, and as you, I'm sure, know personally in your own lives, trying really hard not to be anxious just increases anxiety, it just makes us feel more anxious. So if all of these are the things that Jesus isn't saying, then what is he saying? Well, simply put, as I said on Sunday, he's just speaking of the generosity of God, of the generous love of God, of the radically generous love of God, of the ridiculous and scandalously radical generosity in God's love for you all this is doing is trying to show us that we don't need to compete that we don't need to compare because all they do is just prop up anxiety all they do is just give more weight to that story there's a parable of the sower that Jesus tells a very um, well known story of Jesus talking about the um, how people receive the words that he is teaching, how people take in the teaching that he has for them. And one of the things that I want to pick up on, just to just to finish with very quickly here now, is yes, the seed gets scattered. It gets scattered on the path. It gets scattered in with the, the stones and the rocks. It gets scattered in with the weeds. And it gets scattered in with the good soil. And Jesus has his own um, kind of exposition on, on what that means. But the thing that that I want us to take away from this just as we finish now is that this farmer, this generous, radical, loving God doesn't stop sowing seeds. He throws them and they land on the path. That doesn't make him stop. God throws them and they land within the rocks Where they can't, they don't have a chance to grow. That doesn't make God stop being generous. God throws more seed out onto that soil where the weeds are and they get choked up before they have a chance to do anything. Doesn't stop God sowing seeds. God just keeps sowing those seeds and sowing those seeds and sowing those seeds. Why? He's got a bad businessman? No. He's got a fool? No. Has God just got so much that he doesn't care what happens to it? No. God keeps on throwing that seed out. God keeps on chucking that love at you and into your life over and over again. Day after day. Hour after hour. Minute after minute. Second after second. Because that's who God is. God is generous. And it is only by embracing and acknowledging and trying to understand and working through just how radical and just how generous and just how loving our God is. That is how we deal with our anxiety. So, friends, please remember this. Don't compete. Don't compare. Don't rush around trying to get a million and one other things done. Don't feed this sickness of hurry any anymore. Remember that God loves you. Remember that God loves you with a generous, radical, extravagant love. Grace and peace.